Graham Lynch and this is Comms Day Live. Welcome to the show. Okay, we've got an uh, interesting episode this week. It was a big news week. We'll be talking to Rowan Pearce, our executive editor, about some new legislation, uh, which is a response to the, uh, the FAD for telcos decoupling their infrastructure divisions. We'll also be taking a look at an interesting regional bandwidth network that's been started by Edge Centres. Simon Ducks, our chief editor, will also join us to talk about some new Equinix investments in the Sydney data centre market and also the great battle of the 5G millimetre wave handsets. But first up, Andy Penn from Telstra. He released what Telstra described as a landmark report this week, taking a look at what they term as hybrid working, which... They say it's different to work from home. Hybrid working is when you, you let your staff work from home a couple of days a week and they come into the office for another few days a week. Now, this research, which was uh, conducted by Deloitte Access Economics and the Australian National, National University, makes some pretty big claims for the economic benefits that come from hybrid working. And of course, uh, the more people work from home, the better it will be for telcos as well. Anyway, let's hear what Andy Penn himself had to say about it. He gave a presentation at the Trans-Tasman Circle. Absolutely. I think that this research has, has certainly busted uh, some myths. Um, in fact, it said that um, people, companies working in hybrid have got 6% higher income on average. They're 22% more likely to see productivity, improved productivity and 28% more likely uh, to see greater innovation than those working without um, hybrid um, ways of working. So in many, many ways, I think that they do bust the myth that everybody's got to suddenly get back to the office to be productive. And they prove that hybrid working can boost the economy, boost businesses, large and small, as well as boost engagement and wellbeing for employees. It means ultimately, I think that more people can work from more places more flexibly. The other thing about the research is it also found that um, Hybrid working can improve customer service by up to 12%. And we talked about employee engagement. And particularly, one of the beneficiaries could be small, medium businesses, which have not perhaps adopted um, hybrid working to quite uh, the same thing as well. And I think that when employees are provided with the right hybrid policy and tools, um, they're improved, you know, their productivity improves, but also it can play a role in relation to mental health and I found these data points from the research particularly telling uh, because 90% of those surveyed agreed that their mental health has improved or stayed the same uh, at least with hybrid working. 54% consider hybrid working to be at least or more important than a 5% pay increase Uh, and 83% agreed also that their physical health has improved as well as they've stayed or at least stayed the same and I know mine has as well because uh, it's just enabled me a bit more time to, and moments where I can escape and, and get a little bit of exercise as well. And, you know, I think the research is fascinating because it's obviously occurring at a time when there's this growing um, topic that people are talking about at the moment, about the great um, resignation. And um, what's interesting is that COVID in the last period of time has really prompted us to think about how we work and and where we work and and why we work. And I think that's certainly leading to sort of reflections of people and employees. And therefore, I think that the companies that are going to be successful in the future, uh, the ones that attract and motivate and inspire 
their people and retain the best talent are going to be those that can actually offer them their people the most flexible ways of working in the place they went to work. And I think hybrid's uh, a key element of that. Cover a couple of other, but bust a couple of other myths. So the first thing I should say is that we shouldn't mistake hybrid working for working from home during COVID. And it's important we don't conflate those two things because, you know, candidly, working from home during COVID, our people did not enjoy the sort of flexibility we're talking about here, what they experienced with severe lockdowns and restrictions. And I think the other thing I should stress is that hybrid working, uh, the role of the office isn't dead. It's just going to be uh, different. And so that's why we commissioned this work with Deloitte Access Economics and um, we've used data from over 7,000 organisations and 1,250 business leaders. And I really think it's, um, to your point, it's identified great productivity opportunity, great employment uh, opportunity. And I think coming out of this very disruptive period, it's a great opportunity for us to think about how we rethink work of the future and don't go back to uh, old ways of working. So, look, really excited. And um, sorry, I've probably spoken too long, but um, uh, you can see I'm very passionate about this topic. So back to you. Now, what's interesting about what Andy Penn had to say there is that there's, there's two things, actually, that strike me. The first is that this is an enormous opportunity for telcos. And you know, if the COVID work from home thing showed what's possible, then this will reinforce it. And that is that there'll be a much more significant cohort of people in the residential market who want higher speed, higher quota, and even business-grade services simply because that's what their job demands. So there's an opportunity there. But perhaps the second thing that strikes me is that this is going to be a very good thing for telco bottom lines. Telcos are very office-centric, they're very white-collar-centric. And something which people often don't appreciate is that the cost of providing office space and a desk to an employee is often equivalent to about, say, 10 to 25% of their salary, particularly for telcos that tend to be in premium office markets, CBDs of Melbourne and Sydney and North Sydney and so on. Now, if you've got a situation where most of your staff are working home, say, two days a week, you really don't have the same demand for that office space. You could, you'll be wanting to downsize by 20 to 40% and, and require your employees to do some hot desking. <laughs> That's a whole other issue. But you, you will be looking to economize on office space. And you look at Telstra and, and, and TPG in particular, and also Focus, they, they take many floors of office blocks all around the country. And uh, they have an opportunity to get rid of quite a bit of that. So you're going to see that happening over the next couple of years. And the benefits of that will flow through on bottom lines. Well, moving on, um, we're going to be taking a look at the week that was with Comms Day Executive Editor Rowan Pierce. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Um, you had an interesting story this week about a company, not well, too well known, called Edge Centres, who are doing some pretty interesting things with regional routes around Australia. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so I had a chat to the chief executive, uh, Jonathan Ives, who is a um, very, very interesting guy. So he basically spoke to me about his plans for what he's dubbed kind of region hall. So essentially, edge centers are rolling out this kind of network of like regional edge data centers and region hall is kind of going to be the what the, the name of the network connecting them all together is. So it's going to have... Um, basically 10, 10 gig links to a lot of these regional centers on the East Coast and then potentially extend across to the West. 
somewhat at some point. So what, what's kind of interesting is he's really pushing this idea of they're going to have like a flat pricing of like 350 a meg. And he's kind of contrasting that to some of the zone pricing where regional areas are a little bit more expensive and that kind of thing. Um, so he, he said basically by the end of the year, Edge Centers is aiming to have like eight of these kind of regional data centers um, live um, and then obviously connected by region hall. And then next year, there's going to be like another 10 of the Edge Centers coming online. So it's quite interesting. I think um, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of this kind of stuff ticking away in regional areas in terms of like infrastructure, like edge data centers and regional networks. And I'm kind of interested to see what happens over the next couple of years, really in terms of like agribusiness starting to leverage some of this infrastructure and what it's going to do in terms of like, you know, over the farm applications and that kind of thing. So I think it's going to be an interesting little period. Yeah. Well, give, give us some examples of some of the uh, towns and centers that this network will be going to. Yeah, so so he's looking at like Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. So in Queensland, we're talking kind of like regional centres like Cairns, Townsville, um, Mackay, Rockhampton, Bundaberg, New South Wales. There's like um, you know Nowra, Dubbo, Grafton, Coffs Harbour. In Victoria, we're talking places like you know Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong. Uh, and obviously, he's also got um he's also got kind of like metro pops in um in Sydney and Brisbane and Victoria to kind of like oh, sorry Melbourne, um to kind of like uh, link everything together. But is the point of the network that you can bypass those metro areas though and maybe go direct, you know, go, go from uh, regional Victoria to regional New South Wales, for example, without having to go through Melbourne? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I guess like, you know, they're kind of, um, the, the metro pops are there, you know, because at some point, at some point, maybe you do need to actually get out to the internet and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, obviously you will be able to take some of those regional routes and just totally bypass the metro areas. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, moving on, uh, you had a really interesting lead story in Friday's Comms Day, which um, I, I don't believe got picked up in any other media outlet. And that was a, a new piece of legislation that, that Paul Fletcher uh, introduced to the House on Thursday um, in reaction to this uh, current fad amongst telcos for decoupling their tower networks. T- tell us uh, why he's doing this and, and what problem it's solving. Yeah, so it's quite interesting. Like, obviously, just like um, the government just flipped it out um, with very little kind of foreshadowing. But it's really, it's really like it, it's quite a significant telco bill because it's kind of addressing like two aspects, both of which are actually related to the you know this plan by Telstra to kind of split into three businesses. So you know, as we've kind of covered before, the idea is you have the overarching Telstra Group, and then you have Telstra Infraco, the tower company Amplitel, and then like Telstra Limited or Servco. Um, so. On the one hand, this bill is addressing the thing of like, well, Telstra has all these regulatory obligations and you want to ensure that they they are still active even though you've got these kind of new businesses. So this is going to let the government point at one of those Telstra entities and say, you know, you're responsible for this bit of, um, you know, regulatory compliance. But the other part, which actually applies beyond Telstra, um, which you hinted at, it's a kind of the tower part. And really it's like, um, you know, context is it's not just Telstra we've seen like Optus tells track of its tower business TPG Telecom's conducting a review of its tower network and so what the government wants to make sure is if you have a tower code that isn't itself a, a carrier it still retains its facility access obligations so the government's just said it's like this is like there, there is like this this bit of a loophole that they're moving quite quickly to close. Um, I mean, obviously, you haven't seen any telcos kind of move to shut anyone out of their towers, but obviously, they just want to get this kind of like done, particularly in the context of like you know, I guess Telstra with with Australia's biggest tower network. And I guess this is the kind of housekeeping where if you don't do it, things can go very bad very quickly. 
Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, obviously, you want to kind of you want to get it done quickly before, um, particularly before you know Telstra's kind of corporate entities are slightly more decoupled, I guess. Because like, it, it's like, you know, in terms of some of the, the, the regulatory side of things too, they've said that they want these, you know, they've foreshadowed that maybe there could be changes in the ownership structure of Tel- various Telstra entities. So they want them to still have all these kind of um, obligations they do. So they've kind of, they're just, yes, I guess, uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's before um, before things get too wild. Okay, and I understand this legislation has been pushed off um, as usual these things to a Senate committee for um, review. Yeah, I, I I imagine that's pretty pretty routine with these things, really. So yeah, got it. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for joining us, Rowan. See you next week. Cheers. See ya. Thank. Well, moving on, continuing our look at the week that was with the Chief Editor of Communications Day, Simon Ducks. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Okay, now, uh, you had a brilliant front-page story this week, Simon, in Comms Day, the uh, the battle of the millimetre wave networks. Uh, Take us through what happened. Yes, I know. It's uh, quite funny. The 5G speed wars are hotting up, uh, and now... uh, Optus and Telstra seem to have moved on from uh, waving speed surveys at each other now. And uh, essentially, uh, it all started with a fairly innocuous uh, LinkedIn post uh, from Telstra, essentially showing a uh, test that they did, Paul Milford, uh, the head of technology discovery and validation, uh, in uh, George Street in Sydney uh, with the brand spanking new Google Pixel 6 Pro handset. Now, those things uh, only arrived sort of this week as well, uh, so it's quite interesting. It's the first uh, handset that supports MM Wave in Australia, although uh, Apple and Samsung have also put out their latest handsets, uh, and in the US they support MM Wave. The models in Australia uh, do not. And so that's why uh, this is quite interesting. So the wrapper had come off and uh, essentially uh, Telstra had managed to hit uh, 3.62 gigabit per second down uh, load speed, which is uh, pretty good using uh, MM Wave, uh, their MM Wave network. And so uh, Optus obviously sensed a challenge there and uh, within a couple of hours had unpacked their uh, Pixel 6 and uh, done a uh, similar test uh, on their own network, which they call their 5G Max uh, uh, network, and uh, they managed to pip uh, Telstra at 3.75 gigabits per second, and uh, uh, Telstra won the battle of the uploads uh, slightly ahead of uh, Optus on that one. But it, it, it just uh, a little bit of fun and games, but a uh, more serious point there is the fact that, uh, you know, the telcos are getting on with uh, deploying their MM Wave uh, networks. I mean, uh, Telstra mentioned to us the fact that uh, they've got 65 sites currently live and they're planning uh, to nearly triple that number before the end of the calendar year. So it's it's really uh, kicking on. Uh, initially, these uh, 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 phones, the MM Wave, will uh, work um, non-standalone, meaning that they'll connect via uh, LTE or 4G and uh, then it will be handed over to MM Wave. And when they move to the 5G standalone network, it's a very similar process uh, where uh, the phone will be polled on what it actually supports uh, on the sub-6 gig um, uh, spectrum, uh, and then uh, it will be allocated MM Wave bandwidth, and that's how they can swap out uh, 
and densify their networks and get this high data uh, pushing through uh, on the city. So a little bit of fun and game, but uh, it, it does show how much uh, MM Wave is kicking on. Yeah, and I, I guess the, the point which a few people observed on social media is that at those kind of speeds, you burn through your data quotient in about five minutes. <laughs> it's very true, and, and one could argue that um, uh, you, you, trying to watch 20 to 30 uh, high-definition uh, uh, movies all on one mobile phone might be uh, something uh, to behold, I think. Yeah, yeah you've got, a, you've got a, a phone that now has the sort of uh, capacity as a sort of uh, fibre-to-the-premises G-Pon hub. <laughs> it's, 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 exactly. I mean, literally and more. <laughs> so, anyway, extraordinary stuff. Indeed. Um, so, moving on, and, and I guess this is, this is a related theme. We're talking about sort of massive demands for bandwidth or at least supply of it. Um, Equinix just slipped out a very quiet announcement this week that you picked up on about some yeah. massive data centre investments in Sydney. Very much so. And uh, we were uh, the first to uh, find out about this, actually, because uh, uh, we've been talking about uh, Equinix's uh, potential to invest in Sydney with their hyperscale uh, data centers, uh, essentially targeting the biggest cloud providers. They had this uh, program called Xscale, uh, which essentially around the world it's a uh, joint venture with the Singapore Sovereign uh, Wealth Fund, uh, GIC. And, uh, you know, they've got really big plans for what they're going to do around the world. We're looking at uh, $7.5 billion US uh, dollars to uh, build 34 data centers uh, and creating 675 megawatts uh, when fully built out. So because we were watching all of this, uh, the managing director in Australia, Guy Danskin, said that uh, he was going to make sure that we got the news first uh, regarding uh, the Australian investment. And uh, the interesting thing about uh, them moving their Xscale in, and uh, as you know, you know, uh, Equinix already has 18 other uh, what they call their own IBXs, International Business Exchange Data Centres in Australia, and they'll be opening uh, PE3 in Perth uh, a bit later on this year. But these Xscales are exclusively uh, for the hyperscalers. And uh, they've, this time they've gone for a partner uh, first time anywhere in the world, PGIM Real Estate, which is uh, essentially the real estate arm of Prudential Financial, UK-based global asset management business, and they're a huge business as well. So it's a big step uh, because it's not exclusive to Australia. The uh, two partners may actually look to uh, use this uh, in other uh, markets as well. And that's very, very interesting because it gives Equinix a lot of options uh, over and above a very successful partnership they already have with uh, GIC. Uh, uh, PGIM will own 80% uh, with uh, Equinix remaining uh, 20% of the Sydney uh uh, investment, and they're looking at building two data centres in Western Sydney in uh, Rose Hill, and the uh, uh, essentially that will be uh, SY9X and SY10X, and they're adding on 55 megawatts uh, on on that. Now, the interesting thing I did ask them about, uh, you know, when you look at uh, competitors like Airtrunk, who obviously target the hyperscaler market. And, uh, you know, their, their, their figures uh, for Sydney are like 110 megawatts and 130 megawatts. And I was thinking, you know, is this what you should be doing? Why, why that particular size? And, uh, of course, Equinix pointed out that uh, because these are exclusively targeted at the hyperscalers, that's all they're going to uh, have in there as customers. And it's more about getting uh, those particular uh, big cloud providers immediate access to Equinix Fabric 
which um, uh, immediately opens up a very, very big partner ecosystem. So uh, because of that, uh, you're going to see uh, a lot of interest uh, in um, these ones uh, filling up fairly quickly. I did ask them about whether or not they have to line up customers to build, and uh, uh, I was assured that the way that they look at their model is that uh, they're very comfortable in their build-outs because they're just talking to their particular customers all the time. So they don't need those particular commitments. They're, they're very well uh, watching uh, demand in the markets, and uh, now they've pressed the button to go on Sydney. Yeah, it's very interesting because at the same time they released um, some data, a kind of a, a forecast um, index of, of bandwidth demand by all the various metros across the world. And 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 we reported on this um, as well. That's it, right. It places Sydney as the by, by um, terabits the fourth largest hub in asia pacific only only behind uh, shanghai tokyo and singapore and and the numbers are extraordinary aren't they this year alone sydney's got 240 terabits of interconnect bandwidth but they're predicting that's going to rise to 661 terabits by 2024 um and it's interesting because sydney is becoming a genuinely large hub but it's it's you know Equinix is placing it ahead of places like Hong Kong, Beijing, Shenzhen, Seoul, Osaka. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of it's quite some company there. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So, so you know, it's probably one of the great sort of unrecognized stories, isn't it, that Sydney's becoming quite a significant place in the world for these types of investments and this type of demand. And uh, exactly uh, digging in on some of the verticals that uh, they had, uh, Sydney ranks as the fifth largest hub in the world for content and digital media and the sixth largest for networks, cloud and IT security and business professional services. So you can see it really is becoming uh, this global interconnect hub. And uh, Guy Danskin had uh, some uh, fine words to say about Melbourne. It's coming from a very small uh, base, but... Uh, it is actually going to show in the same time period a 50% uh, compound annual growth rate. So, uh, you know, I think uh, both cities are going to be very, very interesting on uh, cloud provision and cloud servicing going forward. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and Melbourne is much smaller than Sydney. We're talking about only 10% of Sydney in terms of bandwidth, but it's larger than Jakarta and just behind Osaka. So again, that's not bad company to be in. So very, very... um, it sort of uh, makes me feel that Australia's that this this hype around Australia becoming a major hub for Asia Pacific with all the sub cables coming in, there might actually be something to it. And it's it's nice to actually move away from uh, sort of uh, vendor surveys when you're actually looking at a proper survey that's looking at real interconnects and real traffic. Yeah, and they're investing accordingly and putting their money where their mouths are as well, which counts for something. Yeah. It- Exactly. Hey, well, look, on that note, Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again, Graham. That's it for Comms Day Live this week. We'll see you next week.